Well, good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you. <clears throat> some familiar faces I see out there. Some new faces that I have not met before. I think this is my uh, first time in a long time that I've been here on a Wednesday night. And uh, it's a privilege to be here and certainly an honor. Ordinarily, I teach if I get the opportunity on Sunday mornings at Atasca Bible Church, but I'm going to be with you tonight. Grand Rapids, Minnesota is my hometown. I was born here. And uh, I always feel welcome when I come home. So, but especially nice to see my brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, whom the Lord loves, and certainly I do as well. You know, there's a lot going on. And I wondered tonight what would the Spirit of God, shall we say, motivate myself to um, bring something to the pulpit that might minister to you might be of an encouragement to you, something that might lift up your souls in light of some of the trials that are going on, even locally here in the church, as well as in our nation and all around the world. And for that reason, I thought I'll bring something regarding the eternal state, something regarding our future home, the new Jerusalem. And I'll tell you, friends, when we get into the text, you're going to hopefully be encouraged to realize we have a lot to look forward to. I was with my wife the other day on October the 7th, in fact, when the war, so to speak, broke out and Hamas had attacked Israel. Some 1,400 souls had perished that day of all events, a peace event. And we've all heard and listened and watched the video and the news stories, and it's been horrific. And then the response uh, by Israel to uh, Hamas and those lives, shall we say, caught in the crossfire, some 10,000 souls have perished. So me and Steve were praying here, and I thought, let's pray for our enemies, pray for the Palestinians, pray for the Hamas as well, pray for Israel. We pray for these people. But when we were looking at the devotion that morning, I found something from A.C. Gabeline <clears throat> from an old magazine called Our Hope, over a hundred years old, in fact, this magazine is. <clears throat> and in that magazine, I found a verse, and my wife said, uh, why don't you teach on that? Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 21. I'd like to begin this as an introduction before we pray, but here... Moses writes these words, that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them, as the days of heaven upon the earth. Meditate on that phrase, would you please, for a moment as the days of heaven upon the earth. Mr. Gabeline said, days of heaven upon the earth. What, what a beautiful thought. Days of peace is forthcoming. Days of blessing, days without weeping, days without sorrow. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, and days of fellowship with God. We have so much to look forward to. We must not forget, friends, that the eternal home of the redeemed, and that's you and me if you're saved here tonight, will be in a new earth, surrounded by a new heaven. Eternity for God's redeemed ones will be, quote, days of heaven on earth. In that new earth, which our creator, redeemer, will call into existence. Like the days it was for Adam and Eve prior to the fall in the Garden of Eden. What were those days like? Indescribable, nearly inexpressible. But I submit to you, dear friends, those days are coming again. So you can sit in the seats where you are tonight and <clears throat> you can ponder about what's ahead. How can we be motivated? How can we think? How can we be encouraged? 
The scriptures tell us, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former earth, the former heavens, shall not be remembered, nor come into mind, is what Isaiah writes in chapter 65, verse 17. There seems to be a spiritual amnesia when we get to glory. We won't remember anymore the days that we're living today. Because the days in the future are going to be so majestic, stupendous, wonderful. How do we find the words to describe what the future holds in store for us? I think they're going to be such a grand day or days ahead that we'll forget about what the days like were like when we lived here. On this evil, sin-cursed earth. And so, friends, we have to take or allow at least the scriptures to get a hold of our thinking so that we can you know, look forward to something. Otherwise, it just drives us in the ground. The scriptures tell us, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21, 5. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. What's that going to be like, to see the face of our Lord? So let's imagine right now. Let's imagine we're seeing his face in the future, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Jesus Christ. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. He is light. And they shall reign, how long? Forever and ever. Revelation 22, verses 3 and 5. That's our hope. We could almost close our Bibles and our minds and things, ponder on that and say, that's enough for me right there. Well, I trust you have a syllabus tonight. It's a Revelation uh, number 38 handout. Uh, it's in this color here. And uh, it brings us to a subject, what I call <clears throat> the New Jerusalem, our future home. The New Jerusalem, our future home. But before we begin, shall we um, have a word of prayer, please? Lord, I thank you for another day, another night. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight, as was requested. Uh, we even pray, Father, for Pastor Sean and, and Jill tonight, Father, that we pray for them in that place where she's receiving those potent chemotherapy drugs. Father, give her what she stands in need of, and even to be able to um, think that your grace being sufficient for these things. So we ask for a blessing on them. Others that are going through other uh, medical or physical trials, we just think of them collectively. And all those names, Lord, that were on our prayer list tonight, we pray for them collectively, even tonight. So I pray that we would be encouraged uh, by your word as we look into this text here in Revelation 21. And might it all be for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Finally, a new heaven and a new earth. And when we get to this point in the book of Revelation chapter 21, uh, the rapture has taken place over seven years prior. The next major event on God's timetable is what? The rapture. And this could happen at any moment. It can happen uh, before we close here at this place tonight. That's amazing to think because of the doctrine of imminency that something can happen that quick. Blink and you'll miss it. There's nothing left on stage, so to speak, for the Lord to set up, prophetically speaking, for the rapture to occur. We have some days uh, after the rapture before the clock starts to tick on Daniel's 70th week. The time of Jacob's trouble from the prophecies of Daniel 9, 10, and 11, and 12. And then the clock starts to tick for the three and a half years in the beginning of the first half of the tribulation and three and a half years in the second. This is a time of much destruction, uh, much judgment. All hell will be breaking loose on planet Earth. And if you're here tonight and you're a believer in Christ, be encouraged. You won't be here to see it necessarily. You will be in heaven. Praise God for that. Amen? So what we're going to be looking at tonight is 
after the tribulation, which is now ended, there are some days after the tribulation, we know according to the prophecies of Daniel uh, chapter 12, 75 days, 30 and 45, before the millennial kingdom starts, the 1,000-year literal kingdom where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will rule from the city Jerusalem. So do you have that? Here we are right now. The rapture could happen tonight. We're in heaven. If you're saved here tonight, you're absent from your body, present with the Lord. You could be raptured bodily. <laughs> All soul and body and, and uh, spirit now home with the Lord. And then after seven years of being in heaven with the Lord, we come back down with him and set up the kingdom after the tribulation. And here in chapter 21, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We begin to get a glimpse of our promised and glorious future and examine how one day, finally, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, John writes this in chapter 21, verse 1. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had what? Passed away. Also, there was no more sea. So the new heaven and new earth will not come until after God has completed his plan for the first heaven and the first earth. We're in the first earth. We're in the first heaven. These two entities, heaven and earth, will pass away. But that won't happen until Christ returns to the earth to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, where he said that he would, when Moses wrote 3.15, that the Lord Jesus Christ would crush the head of Satan, though the Lord's heel would be bruised. And that happened at Calvary. So our Lord's already had the victory over the devil at Calvary. The devil has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated, according to Genesis 3.15. And the heavens and the earth will pass away that we know it as now. So in verse 1 he says, Now I saw, <clears throat> and now we see that in Revelation 21.1, John here has a new uh, revelation. I saw indicates that there are some new details now of revelation given to John. This is amazing to think that he saw and what he sees, he writes. And what he writes, we get the privilege of reading. A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. He uses the phrase again in verse uh, 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down uh, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He uses it again in verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So he sees these things. We're getting new details of Revelation every time that he writes. <clears throat> he sees these things. And what did John see? He saw a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll start by first noting the chronology of the new heaven and the new earth. And when does this happen? <clears throat> well, as you can see here, we have this chart here. The millennial kingdom is the first stage of the everlasting kingdom or the eternal state. So we see here right now where the cross is, where we're understood to, to, that to be the time of Calvary 2,000 years ago. The rapture of the church is the next major event as mentioned, and then the great tribulation, and then the time when the Lord returns and the millennial kingdom there. And then finally, the great white throne judgment where all the unsaved are judged, and then uh, the devil, the beast, and the Antichrist are cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. So the great white throne judgment, as mentioned here, is the place where the lost are judged and ultimately cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And right now, this lake of fire is being prepared. <clears throat> and that's where, as I mentioned, those three characters will be there for a thousand years. The first occupants, if you will, of the eternal lake of fire. Right now, they're in Hades. The fallen angels and all the unsaved. That's just a temporary place. They'll be taken out of there, if you will, and then brought to the eternal lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. And we know from Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, that the devil and his angels were cast into the same lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They've been there 
a thousand years, and they will be tormented. How long? Day and night forever and ever. So it is notable that the new heaven and earth are not made until Satan is defeated. In the same way or the same arena as Adam's defeat. Shall we say the devil had success there over Adam and Eve? But now the devil will be defeated in the arena he will be sent into the eternal lake of fire. That is on this present physical earth. And only then is Satan cast into the lake of fire. So the declaration of the creation of the new heavens and new earth introduces us to everything that happens subsequently in the eternal state. And this introduces us to the events, the activities, and the nature of the eternal state. In other words, we will see what will be true throughout all eternity from this point on. So we'll first look at the general nature of this new heaven and new earth. And again, this is not just new in time, but it's new in character. The new heaven and the new earth are a whole new kind. It's all brand new. The word new is not the Greek word neos, which means new in time or age, but it is kainos, which means new in quality, new in kind, new in character, all new. And I like that because, you know, when we buy things or we look at items that we want to pick up at the market or otherwise, or we go to the store or something like that, if it has the word new on there, oh, that looks like something I want to buy. It's new. This is a whole new heaven, a whole new earth. New in character, a whole new kind. So we have this question here, what will this mean? And why is this stated, this new heaven and new earth? Well, John's readers find this quite interesting. No more sea at the end of verse 1 there, considering presently three-fourths of the world is covered by water. In the future, there will be no more sea. We live in a water-based environment in which all life on earth is dependent on water for survival. Secondly, the seas affect the atmosphere but, and the climate and other living conditions as well as human transportation. But in the future, the new earth will not need water. Our glorified bodies will not need water. There will be a new life principle called the water of life. But there is no more sea. Now, who is the water of life? Of course, Jesus Christ. If you're looking for water, you're looking at him when you see Jesus Christ face to face. Living water, spiritually speaking. I find that fascinating. As we think about the seas covering as much square miles as it does today on the globe. And at this point, we want to dig a little deeper into tonight's study text from the book of Revelation chapter 21, the new Jerusalem, our future home. So we begin in verse 2, where we read in Revelation 21 these words, that I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now verses 6 through 8. And he said to me, it's done, exclamation point. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So in studying the New Jerusalem, let's start with some opening facts uh, as we follow along on your handout. Point A and number one, the various features. The first thing we notice about its various features is its name is the New Jerusalem in contrast to the old. 
Its name is the New Jerusalem in contrast to the Old. As mentioned here in verse 2. Again, the word new is in contrast to the word old. It's kainos, not neos. It's all new in character, all new in quality, as mentioned. It's fresh and not necessarily new in chronology. But this new Jerusalem will be different from the old Jerusalem as it is today. Technically, there are three. We ask this question, how many Jerusalems there will be human Will there be in human history? There was the historic Jerusalem that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The cross happens around 30 AD, so this was destroyed some 40 years later there, which is 25 years before John wrote Revelation in about 95 AD. Secondly, we have uh, the restored Jerusalem, which is going to occur during the Millennial Kingdom, when Jerusalem will be the capital of the whole kingdom. And we are now looking at the third Jerusalem. This is not the Millennial Kingdom Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, as we saw in verse 1, the old heaven and the old earth were destroyed. So we have a new Jerusalem after the Millennial Kingdom. And we're reviewing the new Jerusalem, which, we, or which will serve as the capital of the eternal state, you see. And what do we know about this new Jerusalem? We know something of its nature. From point two, its nature is that it is holy in contrast to Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. And this, this is a stark contrast to Revelation 11, 8, where Jerusalem is called Sodom in Egypt. Spiritually speaking, where we read in their dead bodies, possibly referring to Elijah and Moses here in that particular reference, will lie in the street of the great city Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. This is during the tribulation. Hardly no interpretation is needed except to say that the reference or the referent here is that the city is in a state of spiritual waywardness. Isn't that the case tonight? The current city of Jerusalem, in a state of spiritual waywardness, is not what is happening to them, some sense of the cycle of discipline by way of the judgment from our Lord. And apart from the prophecies of Zechariah 13, we wouldn't know how many Jews in the future will be saved. But there we see one-third of the remnant will be redeemed and go into the millennial kingdom. And we know two-thirds of the world's population will perish in the tribulation. Many are perishing as we speak. It was a sinful place. During the tribulation period in 11 here, chapter 11 of Revelation, when it should have been holy, it should have been pure, it should have been sinless, it should have been perfect, but it's not. Jerusalem is to be a holy city, and in the future, Millennial kingdom and in the eternal state, it will be holy and always will be the greatest city on earth. Now, we've all been to some pretty great cities in our travels. (laughs) But try to identify for a moment with the greatest city on earth in the future, Jerusalem. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. And holy means that it is without sin. See? And it is set apart unto God. Keep in mind that the new Jerusalem is not the entire eternal state. It simply is its capital. Just a city in the eternal state after the millennial kingdom. So it's not only holy, but we also see... With all the elements of, the, of a city, there's going to be relationships there. We're going to have activities there. There will be socialization there. Hey, it's like being at a glorious wedding in the New Jerusalem to come. And you know, those are always usually a good time, had by all. <laughs> Next, we see uh, the Greek preposition 
ek means out of or out from as a location. So its descent is out of heaven. The city comes down out of heaven from God. Amazing. Which appears to be the third heaven, meaning the very throne room of God. We see here, friends, from the scriptures that it comes down from God. Now, how far is heaven away from us? Zillions of light years. See, these are unfathomable facts of the scriptures, thinking of the future. That it's not easy for our finite minds to wrap our brains around. But this city comes out of heaven down to us. And we're going to see here in a minute that it's being prepared as I speak right now. Did you know that? The Lord Jesus Christ is preparing the new Jerusalem. We're going to see that from John chapter 14. <clears throat> Coming down out of heaven from God. Fifthly, its preparation was in the past with the results continuing in the present, which is the perfect tense, as a bride adorned for her husband. So the word prepared is in the perfect tense. It carries the idea of a uh, you know, completed action in the past with the results continuing in the present and forever and ever again. It's a prepared place before it comes to earth. So it wasn't like he just, you know, flicked his finger, if you will, figuratively speaking, and voila, the city comes out of uh, heaven from God, the new Jerusalem. No, it's being prepared right now as we speak. The concept of a, is of a bride prepared for her husband. It's like when you get married, you know, you just don't all of a sudden, you just don't, you know, become a bride out of thin air and you come down out of wherever. No, you were born, you were raised, and you got of an age where you were gifted to be married and you married. You're being prepared if you're a young lady as a bride for your husband. That's the city of Jerusalem. It's being prepared for her husband. And who's that? Jesus Christ in the church. He's the husbandman, the church is the bride. So the new Jerusalem is a literal place, means location, uh, and we can look at this as we consider the word prepared is in the perfect tense. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So it carries the idea of a completed action in the past with the results continuing in the presence. This is a picture of it. I mean, you have to kind of use an artist's rendition, if you will, of what you know, the new Jerusalem will look like, where Jesus went when he said he would go to prepare a place for us in John chapter 14, verse 2, compared with Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. So it's in heaven, but now it's coming. And not to a theater near you, but it's coming to the stage of the whole earth. And what a stage that will be. Amen? If that is the case, the city would likely partly come down and hover over the earth during the millennial kingdom, but it won't touch down. It'll be hovering there in space. But now in our text, that is in the eternal state, after the millennial kingdom, it is coming out of heaven for good on the new earth, and I tell you, friends, that's going to be some air show. Hollywood would love to get a hold of that scene, wouldn't they? So here's a little slide that I think Andy Woods created. Here, this heaven coming down. Want to see that again? Watch this. <laughs> From God. Boom. This is our city. You have to use your imagination here. Here's a slide that illustrates Jerusalem descending so majestically. And during the millennial kingdom, it will hover over the earth as mentioned and most likely in the Middle East. Here's a theological book quote from Dr. Dwight Pentecost, formerly of Dallas Theological Seminary, when he said, It is generally agreed by interpreters that the city seen in Revelation 21.10 is suspended over the earth. Christ will return to the earth at the second advent and he will reign on David's throne. The center of that authority is recognized to be earthly Jerusalem that does not necessitate the presence of Christ on that throne constantly. Christ may still reign on David's throne over David's kingdom, but make 
the heavenly Jerusalem his place of residence with his bride. So during the millennial kingdom, we have this hovering city, if you will, in the Middle East. Christ has access to it as well as on planet Earth. He works with, shall we say, King David, the vice president of the world at the time. And we, the church, have access to it as well. So this heavenly home of ours has been prepared in the past. It'll come down partially during the millennial kingdom and hover over the earth and fully come to rest on the new earth for eternity in the eternal state after the millennial kingdom. Now let's look at the reality of what's going to happen after that. It's supreme reality. In verse 3 of Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice, John says, from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So the word tabernacle here is speaking of a house, a tent. This is a place. God's house is coming down. And it's with men. Clearly this is not God speaking here, but someone speaking on behalf of God in reference to God. And we observe the word tabernacle goes back to the time of Moses. The focal point of the New Jerusalem is the reality that the tabernacle of God is with men. Like it was in the Old Testament. It was with Israel at the time. With the twelve sons of Jacob that were stationed around the four walls of the tabernacle there in Bible land in Palestine, in the deserts. And God instructed the nation of Israel to build the tabernacle. And that was around 1446 B.C. or so. And they took it around with them wherever they went. It was like a mobile temple. It's where God lived. The Shekinah glory in the holiest of holies. In the days of Moses... If you ask, where is God? Everyone would point to the tabernacle. There's where God is. And remember, he provided a cloud during the day and fire at night. He led the people. And this concept of God dwelling with believers is central to verse 3. And so we ask this question, how is this focal point highlighted throughout the passage? And verse 3 tells us this. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold the tabernacle of God. Notice the emphasis is with men. And he, which is God, will dwell with them. And they shall be, notice the emphasis on his people. Again, God himself will be with them and be their God. Is there any ambiguity or misunderstanding that God is with us in the future, in this temple? <laughs> he sure is. It demonstrates that the focal point of our future and the focal point of the new Jerusalem is God. It's not to experience a carefree paradise, if some have said. It's not to be reunited with our departed loved ones. It's first and it's foremost all about God. Friends, this is going to be the order of the day, as it should be because we will enjoy the personal presence of God and we will enjoy permanent fellowship as well with God. Isn't that wonderful? Just as we ought to be enjoying personal fellowship with the Lord today, do we have to wait for the future of the eternal state to have this relationship with the Lord? No, we can have it right now today. Your sins are confessed, you're walking by faith, you're enjoying the Lord. The Spirit of God has the upper hand as you trust Him, and you walk by faith. The Spirit of God is free to direct you, to teach you, to give you the opportunities of the day and how to minister, how to bring glory and honor to Him for the edification and the benefit and the sake of souls. What are we doing today, Lord? Ought to be our prayers. How would you use me today to serve you? Not necessarily a tall order, but I'll tell you what, it may sound pious, but that is the way we ought to think and live today in our Christian lives. Amen? Though we're going to have God with us, as mentioned here in 21.3, all the time, 24.7. This is our second reality. There are five references to God in this one verse. It demonstrates, as mentioned, the focal point of our future. 
And doesn't this remind us that we have a personal God, a relational God, a God of grace? He is He in the internal state, that is, because He is an eternal God and He will dwell among us. So we can get excited to hear about God, God in the future, God today. And it reminds us of the Garden of Eden. Wasn't God there with Adam and Eve? He walked with them in the cool of the day in the garden. He wanted to have fellowship with them until Lucifer comes along and tempts Eve. She ate and she gave her husband and he did eat. And the world has never been the same since. The curse was put upon us. The curse of sin. And with it comes all the drama of life, especially death. So the fellowship that God point to here says unbelievers will forever enjoy is stressed by the promises he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be what? With them. Thank you, Lord, I say, and be their God. So we also notice that he is holy and that is why heaven is holy. In fact, the new heavens will be holy. And the word holy means perfect or sanctified or set apart, sinless. And the new earth will be holy. And what does holy mean? Everything will be perfect. Wow. What can we say? But just say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> She's a beautiful city. And to think that the new Jerusalem is being prepared right now as we study this fact together. And one day, the believer can look forward to going to this place that uh, Christ has prepared for them all by his grace. We will enjoy a fellowship with him in ways we do not experience now. Dear believer, I don't think it's possible to comprehend just how wonderful it's going to be, how great the future looks for us. So I ask, how can we be even remotely discouraged in light of today's circumstances? Answer, we can't. You know, so keep looking up. I know that they can bog us down, they can alter us, they can distract us. Circumstances, we call them trials. You know, trials are designed to reveal a certain something to you, what the Lord wants to bring out from you, so you can understand what it is that he's trying to mold in you, if you will, and shape you and form you and teach you. And then trials are designed to, you know, refine you and me, and one day ultimately uh, reward us at the Bama seat, the judgment seat of Christ, for well done, thou good and faithful servant. And to more fully appreciate what this new Jerusalem is like, though, we, we're given examples of, won't, of what won't be there. And I tell you what, this is my favorite part. Are you ready? No more death. 21.4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Remember, sin has a price tag. The wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. And now we see that once sin is gone, Completely, there is no more price to pay. Why is that? Because it was paid first at the cross. So in the eternal state, with a glorified body, you are no longer capable of sin. Your sin nature is gone, gone, gone. How do you like that? And because of that, there is no need for the penalty of sin because there is no more sin, there's no more death. And in the text, we're seeing a small list here of no mores. How about this one? No more tears. No more tears. Now, doesn't this remind us that we have a compassionate God? But wait, there's more. No grief in heaven. No disappointments. No tears of sorrow. God knows every tear, by the way, that you have ever shed. If you read, or read uh, Psalm 56, verse 8, it says there in that particular verse, you keep track, the Lord does of all my sorrows. Really? You've collected all my tears in your bottle. Really, Lord? And you've recorded each one in your book. Really? 
You have not forgotten my tears and my sorrows, my griefs and my disappointments. No. I put it all into a bottle. I know each and every one. And notice he did not eliminate those things that cause the tears, though until this time he has your tears in a bottle ever since you were born. And God cannot forget every drop you shed. Now this really moved me, because all of us in the room here tonight have shed a few tears, haven't we? And there's more tears to come. All those tears in a bottle. He knows them, he's recording them, he's tracking them. And His grace is behind every drop. But in the future, in the eternal state, no more tears. It's going to put Kleenex right out of business. <laughs> the third excluded, now this is excluded, it's not going to be in the eternal state. The excluded condition in verse 4 is no more sorrow, which is often connected with sin, connected with tears, connected with death. And these will be what? No more! <laughs> you have to shout it and we say, hooray! <laughs> no more sorrow. No more crying over the loss of a child. No more crying over a loved one or a spouse. No more crying or over a murder or abuse. And we're crying over natural disasters and wars and destruction. The people that are crying tonight in Israel, in Palestine, in Gaza, in Ukraine, in some of the poorest countries in the world, they're suffering. What is the solution? What is the antidote? What is the answer to their tears? the future eternal state, to get saved. And that's why we're here, friends, as ambassadors of the gospel, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, because we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. So don't we have a cause to march, to move, and a purpose to serve the Lord? Beginning right there with the gospel of grace. These people need to be saved. So in the future, there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. What a blessing it is for the child of God to know that one day there will be no more crying. Amen? Fifthly, and this one is another one of my favorite parts of the passage. Boy, no more pain. <laughs> It's all due to Adam's sin. No more pain and the curse which we inherited when we were conceived in our mother's womb. But again, remember, all these promises are only true of those in the new Jerusalem. Only for believers in Jesus Christ, who is God, who became a man and died for our sins on the cross at Calvary. Praise the Lord for such an inexpressible gift due to His amazing grace. No more pain. Aren't we all looking forward to that? No more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears. And why is that? Why is this going to be the case? In the orange there we see because the former things have passed away. Sin and the consequences of sin are gone forever. In this new heaven, in this new earth, in the eternal state. Now as we move along in the text, John's vision brings us beyond the excluded conditions to this new order of things to come. And again, as I mentioned, this will be the case because the former things have passed away. Revelation 21.5 Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, write, John, for these words are what? True and faithful. And so who is the personal pronoun here that's mentioned in verse 5? He that is being referred to here. There is a general consensus in the commentaries that he, in verse 5, is speaking of God the Father. Then he the Father who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And where is he located and what does this underscore? He is sitting on the throne which speaks of his sovereignty. 
I make all things new. And this underscores that he is king, or as king is in charge. He is the one supreme ruler of the universe. And God the Father makes an important announcement here. Behold, I make all things new. Then he who sat on her throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And the word new here again is kainos. It's new in kind, new in quality, new in character. It's all new. Since we are new creations in Christ, God wants us to have a new heaven. He wants us to have a new earth, and that fits who we are, who we are, by way of positional identification truths from Romans 6, 7, and 8, because we are a new creation in Christ, as Paul tells us in the Corinthians when we were first saved. So you're new the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. Now that's invisible to see, but it's a reality. Then John is simply told to write these things down. I'm sure he's just probably, uh, Lord, I just don't know what to say. What do I, you know, he's, write them down. <laughs> so that it'll be recorded in the book called The Bible That's in Front of You and that People, millions of people can read in the years to come. Behold, I make all things new. So John writes them. And so, number two there, uh, his dogmatic statement is simply, Behold, I make all things new. Not just some, but all things new. New in kind or quality. So in Revelation 25 and 6, then uh, we read here the Father, then he, the Father, who sat on a throne, said, Behold, I make all things new. Uh, and he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So John is an eyewitness to these things, and the Lord wants him to record this. And can you trust these words? Just like God is trustworthy, when you rightly divide God's word, you can trust that it will come to pass. Friends, these things are going to happen. Wow. It's almost like you, when you read these things, and we're not real familiar with these particular scriptures, especially in Revelation at the last two chapters, to consider what is going on here. And with our finite minds, we go like we have to hesitate to even almost trust the Lord that this is going to be the case in the eternal state. And so we ask, will this promise one day be fully accomplished? Well, what does it say? It is done. The plan of God is done. And man being tested is now over. It's now done. How do you like that? No more sin. It's done. How do you like that? Whatever decision has been made for or against Christ has been made in now eternity or better said, the eternal state has begun. Wow. So I think we can be encouraged by this as we consider, you know, the circumstances, the drama, the trials, the events, the activities of what's going on today. Let's look ahead a little bit. Next we observe, it is accomplished. Uh, it is completed, it is done, not done rather, just as God said it would be. He made all things new. So the plan of God and man being tested is now over. Number three, his self-description is, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And in the Greek alphabet, the first letter is Alpha, and the last letter is Omega, the beginning and the end. What he is saying here, friends, is that in the beginning and in the end, there is God. There is also the description of the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> in Revelation 1, uh, 17 and 18 here in the next slide. And he said to me in verse 6, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So this is also a description of our Lord, a description of the Father. And in Revelation 1.8, in reference to Jesus Christ, both God, the Father, and God the Son are one and are referred to here as the Alpha and the Omega. So we want to review now the occupants of the New Jerusalem, and this is also a fun one. 
who is going to be there by way of the occupants, who is not going to be there, as well as who is. And before that is defined for us, we uh, first see an inclusive offer from God at the end of verse 6. At the end of verse 6. In verse 6 we read, And he that is the Father said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Freely who, to him who thirsts. Notice it is inclusive. It's an offer given to anyone. Given to everyone. No one is left out. Water is necessary for physical life, but this water is for eternal life. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 4, uh, distinguish these two types of water to the woman at the well. So the inclusive offer of God is, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now when we have the woman at the well, in John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks, present tense, with abiding results, of this physical water will thirst again. This particular physical water would not have necessarily the kind of uh, qualities, spiritually speaking, as we consider this aorist tense, but whoever drinks of the spiritual water that I shall give him will never thirst. That's amazing. You drink the physical water, you'll thirst. The spiritual water, you'll never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, you know, springing up into everlasting life. Until you have eternal life, friends, you will always be thirsty is the idea. One drink of this water that the Lord will give would quench this woman's thirst forever if you drink from the water that only Jesus Christ can give you. So it's offered to all, but you have to believe that Christ died for your sins, period. Next we see who will actually occupy the new earth. So the occupants, number two, of God's eternal home are described as he who overcomes, who is promised that he shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So the occupants are simply those who um, overcame, called in Scripture the, the overcomers. Very controversial word in a lot of camps and so forth by way of interpretation, but we read this question, who is the overcome, and John told us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, these words, for whatever, or for whatever is born of God overcomes, and the word overcomes here is the Greek word nakao, where we get the English word Nike, for Nike shoes, which means victor. So if you're an overcomer, you're a victor, overcomes the world in this case, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What has? Our faith. Faith in what? Faith in the cross work of Jesus Christ, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That is the answer to the question, who is the overcomer? So the overcomers are the occupants of the new earth, and we see here that overcomers are believers, and we see more evidence of this overcomer earlier in Revelation. For example, what is the overcomer promised in Revelation 3, 5? The overcomer is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins and arose again. So in verse 5, he who overcomes, notice it says right here, shall be clothed in white garments, true of all believers. And secondly, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That's eternal security right there. But I, verse 3, will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So question, would unbelievers be clothed? in white garments and written in the book of life? Answer, obviously not. Why? Because they are not what? Overcomers. They do not believe. And what are these overcomers promised? Verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. I like that. All things, not just some, but all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And what is it that we inherit? Everything described in Revelation chapters 21, Chapter 22, which time does not allow for us to see everything there in that text tonight, but it is absolutely amazing what we shall inherit, what we have to look forward to. So, dear saints, be encouraged.
Let's also consider that God's promises, when he tells the believer in Christ, I will be his God, a personal walk and a relationship with the Almighty, Almighty Creator, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. We're going back to those days by way of the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God before the fall. And we will be his sons, no longer slaves to the sin nature. Heirs, we're going to be inheriting, crying, Abba, Father. So believer, believers are the occupants. And if you're saved here tonight, you're going to be, you're already an occupant. There's a reservation with your name on it. Isn't that cool? <laughs> but what about the unsaved who are excluded in verse 8? We see here, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we observe here that the excluded individuals from God's eternal home are the unsaved who die in their sins due to their rejection of Jesus Christ and remain in their sinful state throughout all eternity as they have their part in the lake of fire, which is the second death. I mean, they were spiritually thirsty, but they did not come. They did not drink of the water. They were spiritually thirsty, but they did not take of the water of life freely that was offered to them like the woman at the well did. They were spiritually thirsty, but they did not... And they never shared in Christ's victory by placing their faith in Him. Therefore, and sadly, they die in their sins and spend eternity in the lake of fire. But it's not like they were not warned, because look at what God offered them as we think of these words. For God so loved the world, in John 3, 16, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will what? Die in your sins. The Bible is very clear here, and frankly quite simple. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, period. But seriously take heed to God's word when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that, notice, Catch it now, the unrighteous, if you're unrighteous, you're unsaved, will not, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived that the, all these individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those who do not place their trust in Christ will have their works judged at the great white throne judgment. And no one, and I repeat, no one will be judged good enough. Why is that? Because Romans tells us there's none that does good, no, not one. They become all unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. And all their works are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, 6. So we just looked at the new description of the new heavens and the new earth in general, and we learned that the new Jerusalem is the home of the church, including both saved Jews as well as saved Gentiles. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Jewish individual, biologically speaking, you're a Gentile. And if you're a saved Gentile, you're a member of the church, the bride of Christ. The new Jerusalem is the home of the church, including both saved Jews as well as saved Gentiles. You know, it's home to those who have been forgiven, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and by grace placed into union with Him. So in the next verses of Revelation 21, John gives us stupendous details of the new city that's coming to earth, the new Jerusalem. And we know in Revelation 21, this new Jerusalem, as I mentioned, comes down from heaven to rest on the earth. And we want to ask, what is that really like? How is it described, this new Jerusalem? Well, the shape of the city is of a cube, which is approximately 1,400 miles in length, height, and width. Some say it may be as much as 1,500 miles. 15 long, 15 wide, 1,500 high. 1,750,329 square miles. This is a gigantic cube. The total base area of the city would be these many miles, and there would be enough room to house 72 billion inhabitants. No homelessness in the New Jerusalem. That's just on the ground floor alone, by the way. 
we could only convince those that have taken up the cause of homelessness as, as genuine as it is, shall we say, and communicate the gospel, they realize that the homeless have a home. Amen? The new Jerusalem, plenty of room to spread out. The new Jerusalem would look something like this if the new earth were the same size as what we have now. It will probably lie in the Middle East, I mentioned that already, hovering during the Millennial Kingdom, then come down and be in the eternal state after the Millennial Kingdom because it is the new Jerusalem versus the old, so it's likely in the same vicinity as the old Jerusalem has been, and God promised uh, Israel the land forever, so it makes sense that the city would be here in the land also. It's quite an area. So the size of its walls, 72 yards, 66 meters, which is in reference to its thickness. That's 216 feet thick wall. <laughs> That's a lot of concrete. If it's out of concrete, and I don't know what it's going to be made of, but roughly the width of a soccer field. That's how thick these walls are. Who's going to penetrate those walls? Are these massive measurements meant to be understood literally? Well, the answer is yes. Look at verse 17, 21, Revelation 21, 17, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. The angel is using the measurements of man. I mean, using his Stanley tape measure, that's the measurement of a man. Those of you who work with, with dimensions or tape measures so that there would be no misunderstanding concerning the exact size of this particular city. So we ask this question, who will live in the New Jerusalem? In the New Jerusalem, you're going to have members of the church there as well as the redeemed of Israel. Outside the New Jerusalem and other parts of the New Earth, you'll have all the believing Gentiles for the first 2,000 years, including Noah and Enoch. And there will also be believers in the tribulation who got saved who are not Israel or the church. But this, this place is for us, the church, as well as the Jews saved from the day of Pentecost forward to the last shingle that's put on the roof of this church building, figuratively speaking. This is your home, friends. These are Gentiles and Jews. Welcome to the new Jerusalem and free to enter into the gates to worship God, worship the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's that going to be like? Are you looking forward to it? <laughs> and interesting to note, the light of the new Jerusalem, God and Jesus Christ is so brilliant and so splendid that people who live on the outside can walk by means of its light. So the city is so bright. You ever been to Las Vegas? The lights, the city of lights, you go into this one street I don't remember the name of it, but they have a lot of music going on. There's lights everywhere. It's like, this is the closest I think you can come to the New Jerusalem when you go there. But this is so bright, it's going to light up the people around. <laughs> so who again is on the outside? Saved Gentiles from the Old Testament times and tribulational saints who get saved. And those who live outside will bring glory you know, into the New Jerusalem as well. The New Jerusalem and new earth. So we saw tonight in chapter 21 a glimpse, you know, of our incredible future with God and with Jesus Christ. We see our massive and, and brilliant dwelling in the new Jerusalem where there is no need for the sun or the moon and we have direct access to the Son and God the Father. What's that going to be like? Direct access. And this should give us a unique perspective as believers as we see this in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time right now tonight, whatever is in your heart or on your minds or in whatever is in your prayers are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Our time is gone. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for tonight as we consider Revelation 21 and these precious passages that remind us of the future that we have to be with you and your Son, Jesus Christ, forever and ever and ever. To be with like precious saints and believers that we know 
and don't know who we're going to meet. And to think that the light of the city of Jerusalem is so bright that it'll light the outside for those to see. And to have access there and there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Thank you, Lord, for these promises. And I pray that we would walk in light of this, uh, knowing that this is true, because you said so to John. Write it down as you told him. These words are true and faithful. So we thank you, Lord, for, again, your, your love for us. We cannot thank you enough, and especially we thank you for the precious blood of your Son, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, was buried and arose again, and that you made eternal life so simple by faith alone in Christ alone. And uh, for that, we thank you forevermore. And we pray now as we go our own ways, pray for safety as people go home as well. And we pray and we ask these things now in the name of your, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, thank you.